Hey there, and welcome to The Jeffrey Van Dyke Show, a podcast for paradigm changers. Each week, I speak with another influential leader who's changing the conversation for their audience, their industry, and this world. I am so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. All right, well, welcome so much. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, we have with us today Jody Armour. Jody is the professor, the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California, a widely published scholar, popular lecturer. He studies the intersection of race, law, morality, and psychology, along with politics, ordinary language, philosophy, and the performing arts. His latest book, N Asterisk GGA Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice in the Law, looks at America's criminal justice system among the deadliest and most racist in the world through deeply uh, interdisciplinary lenses. And uh, we'll be talking about that quite a lot in this conversation. Uh, Jody's appeared as a legal analyst on NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, PBS, NPR, and many other programs. At the request of the U.S. Department of State and European embassies, Professor Army has toured uh, major universities in Europe to speak about social justice, as well as hip-hop culture and the law. Uh, Jody, I'm just so pleased you're here. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this conversation, Jody. Yeah, I am too. Um, I got to say, we've had this uh, booked for some time, and um, it it it... I was just sitting with yesterday the uh, verdict coming down on on Derek Chauvin's case uh, with George Floyd's death, and uh, you know that we're having this conversation the next day. Um, before we dive into anything else, and there's a lot of ground I want to cover with you today. Um, I'm curious it, how you're feeling today. What's stirring for you? Uh, You've been a part of this conversation for years and years and years. Yeah, Jeffrey, you know, for me, there was no eruption of joy, really. You know, yeah. it was more of a somber and kind of stunned satisfaction, you know, but not an eruption of joy because, you know, the satisfaction came from the worst fears not being realized. Mm-hmm. I had the kind of satisfaction or relief you would feel if you heard that a meteor, a meteor was heading straight for Earth and we narrowly missed it. It narrowly missed us. You know, there was a calamity that we could have had to go through if there really had been a complete acquittal. As there had been, for example, here in L.A. in 92, when there was also a videotape. And then it was Rodney King yeah. being repeatedly beaten with, by four officers who, and the videotape seemed like knockdown, compelling, ocular proof of wrongdoing, right? Yet when the case got to Simi Valley and the jury looked at that video, they acquitted those four officers and told black people not to trust our lying eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a it was a monumental act of gaslighting, gaslighting of Black America by non-Black America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know that is a possibility. You know that well, I knew that Walter Scott, um, one of the early Black Lives Matter hashtags, was on a video being shot six times in the back while he was running away. That was on video, and the first jury deadlocked on that. 
Yeah. So there was a sense of relief that at least the bar doesn't go lower than this, right? At least the bar doesn't go lower than nine minutes and 29 seconds with your knee on a, on a man's neck who's prone and in handcuffs and dies um, and, and, your, and your knee remains on his neck minutes after his last gasp uh, for, for air and death, right? Um, um, my hope is that, my hope was that at least those facts would secure us a conviction. Now that's a hell of a low bar, Jeffrey. That's yeah. why I'm not celebrating. I'm not feeling triumphant today because that's a hell of a low bar. Yeah. But, you know, we did at least avoid uh, a kind of calamity. Yeah. So, so much of my work uh, looks at how our life's difficulties, our traumas, our uh, life struggles prepare us for our gifts if we, you know, if we go on that hero's journey. And uh, you've been a part of, of race and law since you were a kid. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about your upbringing, your father, uh, that story, because it, it is, um, there's a lot I want to get into around language. And there's so much about that, that uh, it, it just blows my mind in terms of how words seeped into your being. Yes, yes, Jeffrey. Well, I'm just a living legacy of a jailhouse lawyer. That's how I viewed myself for a long time. My dad was uh, given 22 to 55 years for possession and sale of pot mm -hmm. in 1968. We suffered a Breonna Taylor kind of raid on our home, no knock raid. And my seven brothers and sisters and I were lined up while the phalanx of officers went through our home and allegedly found a bag of weed. And my dad was uh, one of those uppity blacks in his day who would, would have done the full 55. He wasn't going to get good time credit. You know, he's yeah. a six foot eight inch, barrel chested black man who flouted the racial conventions of his day. And so he was, either, he was looking at either rotting in that jail cell for life or finding some route of escape, some mm -hmm. tool, some mm -hmm. instrument. And the instrument he found was by reaching in, up and pulling books down from the warden's shelf, library shelf of books, and teaching himself constitutional law, criminal law, criminal procedure. And then he started typing out his own writs of habeas corpus and another legal memoranda on his cell floor on a royal manual typewriter that I still have here. Amazing. Uh, in this room. Um, he, he represented himself pro se through the state system, through the federal system, until five years later, I lost him. We, you know, family said we experienced that family separation when I was eight. You know, family separation has been going on as part of the criminal justice system in America for generations, yeah. not just something that goes on at the borders, however, as, as atrocious as that is. You know, we have a lot of it going on internally. Had it then. The next time I was standing next to him outside of a prison. Uh, 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 context was in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati, where he was standing in front of an en banc panel of judges in the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati. And by the way, you know, Cincinnati is where the Underground Railroad comes up. If you fly in, if you take a flight to Cincinnati, you land in Kentucky. 
and in the airport, their airports in Kentucky. And then you take a car over the river and there you are in Cincinnati. So historically, if you reach Cincinnati as part of the Underground Railroad, that's where the Underground Railroad came up. That's where black bodies in bondage found deliverance, yeah. right? And so yeah. here was my dad, another black body in bondage, seeking deliverance in Cincinnati, arguing in front of an en banc panel of judges, literally for his life. And now I teach his case in my criminal law class. It's called Armour versus Salisbury. Mm -hmm. And it stands for the following proposition that you would have thought would have been established well before his case, but he had to help establish this proposition that it's a denial of due process to a citizen for the state through a prosecutor to deliberately lie to a jury to secure a conviction. So there was no question that the prosecution lied intentionally, deliberately, and materially huge, boom, humongous lie. But the prosecutor said, ah, oh, that should be harmless error. Uh -huh. Didn't matter. And yeah. my dad's case said that that is a denial. And so I learned from him, Jeffrey, to wrap it all up, that I learned that, you know, Given that circumstance, all he had was word work. All he had was language. The only thing between him and rotting in that jail cell was what, what he could do by putting words in a certain order, paragraphs in a certain order on a page. And the next thing you knew, the, he found the key to his jailhouse door in the warden's own law books, right, using language. So I, I learned early on that words are acts. Mm -hmm. with consequences, as Toni Morrison says. Mm -hmm. They're not just entertainment. They're acts with consequences. And I, I've, I came to appreciate the, you know, midwifery property of words, the power of language. Yeah. Uh, in, in your book, uh, one of the lines that I loved was, uh, you know, N-word theory is words. It's word work. It's performance. It's an accounting. It's a recognition. It's a prayer. It's a demand for justice. Uh, that, that line hit me really deeply, uh, because I think, um, I think in many ways, it's a bit of a, uh, not just a lost art, but a lost understanding of the value, the gravity, the currency of words. Uh, and you know, everything I learned from you is really more and more deeply the layers of the currency of words, the value of words. Uh, the role of words. Um, I'm curious. So you were eight when this happened, right? He got out, I think when you were 14. Yep. Is that right? Yep. And you were the youngest? No, I was kind of in the middle. I was the oldest armor. My mom had three kids before. So I was one of eight, but I was kind of in the middle. All right. Got it. How, so you're, you, you know, you're the first armor, uh, I'm curious you know, how this hit you as a young boy and kind of what you went through, uh, you know, as an eight-year-old, as a 10-year-old, when he got out, how, how did that hit you and what impact did that have on you? Yeah, well, you know, I knew that the bag of weed that they claimed, even as an eight-year-old, even as an eight-year-old, I knew that the bag of weed that the police claimed to have found in a kitchen cupboard wasn't in that kitchen cupboard. I'd just been in that kitchen, that it had been planted, right? I knew even as an eight-year-old that the weed had been planted, right? And so now I see my, you know, my dad's gone and I keep thinking back to 
that planted bag of weed and the power of police officers, uh, you know, to do that. And that's all that I could think of when I thought of my, 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 my dad. And I didn't have any other way to process it, Jeffrey. That is, that was the sole way that I could process it was as a abduction of my dad by state actors who fabricated evidence against him that even as an eight-year-old, I could see through, right? And um, nevertheless, he was getting ready to rot in a jail cell. Our our family went from a middle-class existence because they lost their breadwinner from a middle-class existence to crumbs and roaches and rats, right? We were trying to, you know, living on government cheese and and, um, AFDC, um, the only thing that saved me from that situation was a great society program called A Better Chance that takes kids out of inner city areas and puts them in boarding schools where they have a better chance to go to college. Hmm. But that was the consequence, you know, that, so that's how it hit me. It, it hit me that, man, I didn't realize that you could, you know, go to, you could go from a Cosby kid kind of existence a comfortable middle-class kind of existence yeah. to, you know, scratching for uh, survival and subsistence uh, that quickly. But th- I learned that as an eight-year-old and it stuck with me. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, I'm just imagining being a kid because, you know, we all go through life kind of thinking our life is going to stay roughly the same. Right. Like, oh, this is how my life is. This is how my I know my life to be, whatever it is, whatever the circumstance is. And, you know, of course, by we don't anticipate getting the rug pulled out from underneath us. We don't anticipate an abduction. Uh, What what did that teach you? I think, Jeffrey, it, it made me the kind of writer I am, the kind of scholar I am. It made me very skeptical it may you have authority in general um and it fueled my passion to question the status quo any kind of received wisdom you know especially not to trust uh, authorities and law enforcement you know because even back then as an eight-year-old i heard was hearing my dad's stories about the lie that the da told to get Mm -hmm. him locked up so there were two lies I was looking at as this eight-year-old, right? One, the planning of the pot, and the other, the prosecution lying to the jury. It wasn't enough to plant the pot. That was, you know, they had to cinch it with the lying to the jury. That's how much they wanted to bring down this big uppity black man. Yeah. You know, um, and so that that that's made that's informed my scholarship. You know, I. I think it's, it's bring, I bring to every kind of situation I'm trying to analyze a kind of dual consciousness, right? One part of my mind is the one that is from that background, from that context, very skeptical of, you know, all things that we take for granted. And another part that's, you know, gone through, you know, the traditional schooling that we go right. through, you know, yeah. high school, then college, then... And they, you know, they teach you to look at things in a kind of mainstream way. So now I have kind of dual, a dual consciousness, as, as the boys described, you know, kind of dual 
um, awareness, uh, a kind of binocular disparity, if you will, yeah. that comes from two different perspectives being brought simultaneously to bear on the same object of analysis or study. And that's what gives you depth perception, right? That binocular disparity, that taking advantage of that, that dual consciousness. And so it's actually been helpful in my scholarship. I love that you share that. Um, so many of the folks that uh, are in my world and that I'm called to serve are outsiders. You know, they, 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 they haven't always fit. Uh, they've had to find their way. Uh, and I always say that, uh, you know, the sacred role of the outsider is to be a way shower. Uh, because when you're on the outside looking in and you're not just in the mix with everybody else, you, you see things other people don't see, right? You see patterns other people don't see. You see disparities people don't see. You also see paths forward that other people might not have recognized. Uh, and that, that, uh, that lens that's focused in, in multiple ways. I mean, growing up as, like you said, moving from, from a Huxtable kid, Huxtable lifestyle uh, to, you know, to, to scraping by and then going to Berkeley and Harvard uh, on your way to becoming a professor. That, that's a lot in the, in the pie, you know? Um, uh, I, I'm curious about disruption because the very nature of, uh, you know, just, you know, N-word theory. Yes. It, yes. You, you know, you go into great detail about why that word and why it's necessary and why you use it and how you use it. Yeah. Uh, just one little quote, uh, N-word theory traffics in transgressive utterances precisely because it is a way to examine the relationship between freedom of expression, academic freedom, transgressive art, unsayable words, words that wound, hate speech, racial justice, and social justice. I'm wondering what you can share about your theory, uh, both N-word theory in general, but, but also word work and yeah. disruptive word work, right? That, yeah. that shakes things up and compels us forward. Yes, I love it. You know, I love focusing on language. A lot of times I've talked about the book and I haven't been able to talk about this part of it as much as I uh, would like, Jeffrey. So I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, the, um, the, the point of the N-word here is what I was doing was uh, what Black Lives Matter describes as their um, primary methodology. One of the hallmarks of their approach to social activism is number one, disruption, mm -hmm. right? Shut it down. Yeah. Let's cut through our collective complacency about savage racial injustice and yeah. social inequality by first shutting it down and then compelling some uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. So for me, the way to shut it down, if you will, to be disruptive was to introduce the N-word to settings that were unfamiliar with having it introduced to them. So taking it into academic settings, for example. In 1999, I went, in, I went to the American Association of Law Schools annual meeting. And they, uh, 
you know, invited me to uh, give talk at this workshop on criminal justice. I've written a couple articles about criminal law. I'm sure they expected me to talk about, you know, social cognition approaches to the, you know, to human decision making and, uh, you know, implicit bias and some of, and things along those lines. Um, but before I went I, uh, to that meeting to give that talk, I was invited to speak at uh, in San Pedro, a terminal island, a federal prison uh, down the street from me, and uh, to talk to the guards, et cetera, about unconscious bias. They gave me a tour of the cell blocks, and I saw all of these dis grossly disproportionately black faces that looked just like the, the young men I grew up with, the boys I grew up with, you know, mm -hmm. that could have easily been me. And it just, it, it, really, uh, it really unsettled me. So that when I got to New Orleans, I got up on the podium, got the microphone, had 300 Tweedy law professors, right, you know, sedate, sitting back, waiting for this kind of, you know, um, you know, the usual ossified language of the academy to be delivered from the podium. And I told them that, you know, I think that kind of language has been lulling us mm -hmm. as academicians, as scholars, uh, lulling us into complacency about some of the atrocious conditions that these people were talking about. You know, we talk about them as offenders and felons and criminals. We abstract them, you know, and talk about them in the, using these labels when these are human beings behind these, you know, names and labels. And I was looking in their eyes in these cages that we throw them in and I can't get them up on this podium and just go through our usual rigmarole. And I, I, I said a little more gracefully than that. I set it up. And then, uh, Jeffrey, I launched into 16 bars from Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted, which is, you know, um, has lines like chicken shit called street knowledge. Why more niggas in the pen than in college? Because of that line, I must be a cellmate. That's from the nigga you love to hate. Right. And he kind of goes through a consistent, you know, kind of critique of, you know, uh, the social inequality, racial oppression, but in profane language, that's disruptive, yeah. right? That, that was the point against the rap, right? When, when Ice Cube said, you know, the, the first time I heard it, walking down Bancroft Way in Berkeley, I'd never heard a sound like this. It was from NWA. Somebody had a, a speaker out the window and I heard something, somebody saying, um, fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown and not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. And, I, and what I heard was clearly political speech. Yeah. What other people heard was a reason to lock him up. The police told him on stage, if you utter those words, we're going to put handcuffs on you and lock you up. He went out on stage, uttered those words on a number of occasions. They put handcuffs on him and locked him up, right? That's why I am such a almost free speech, you know, kind of, a partisan. I'm a strong free speech partisan. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, to be sure, I'm, there, there are some limits that anybody's going to recognize on anything, but I'm a strong partisan because I know that our trans, the transgressive words, the, sim, the, the you know, linguistic and non-linguistic forms of symbolic communication that dissidents use, that Black folk use, that those who are opposing the status quo use, that they are going to be made targets of any hate speech crimes, of any efforts to regulate speech. Yeah, they may go after the KKK today, but 
trust. Tomorrow is going to be Black Lives Matter and they're going to be calling Armour a black identity extremist. And they're going to be cracking down on, you know, uh, what they view as what we've seen them already cracking down on last summer in the streets. We saw what the police were doing to ordinary citizens and journalists and everybody else. So why do we think they're they're going to do less of that if we give them more tools to do it? Yeah. Yeah. So you you take these words and you say, hey, it's it's time we we use them versus having them be used against us. It's time we 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 take that sharp knife and 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 cut into the fabric of our complacency so that we can wake up and have a new conversation. Yeah, Jeffrey, I think in part what my project my part is my my project is in part descriptive and in part prescriptive. The de- the the I am saying we should use it the word this way, but I'm also describing how it is used, the descriptive part, that black folks before I came along started using the N-word in in, um, oppositional ways, Mm -hmm. in ways that were meant to signal solidarity and to be a term of endearment, as well as a term to denigrate somebody, right? So when you had, you know, going back to the last poets, Richard Pryor, uh, coming all, all the way up to, you know, somebody like Tupac, when you got into rap, hip hop, gangster rap in particular, you really saw people like Pac, Nas, Ice Cube, Jay-Z, Hove, you know, so um, and others, you know, who would use a kind of inward laden, profane kind of art to criticize uh, the status quo a lot of times. And with, but they would also use the N-word in ways like this, Jeffrey. Um, I'm thinking of a hook from Pac's Solidarity Dirge, Life Goes On, where he says, how many brothers fell victim to the street? Rest in peace, young nigga, there's a heaven for a G. Be alive, I told you that I never thought of death. My niggas, we the last ones left. But when he says my niggas, he's using the N-word as a term of endearment, as a term of, as an assertion of solidarity, as an expression of sympathetic identification and love with and love for yeah. someone who he's saying, I know you're in the same social category I am, that one that is vilified by others. That's, that's part of the N-word, but it also is something that, I, that bonds us. I recognize a unity in our condition, so you're my nigga, all right? And I, I'm in a position that others aren't because we are members of the category that's been historically targeted by that epithet, we're in a position to use that word with irony that outsiders cannot. That's why non-Black people cannot use the N-word, because you cannot use it with the same sense of irony as a member of the group that's been historically targeted by the epithet. Why is that so hard to get? Yeah, I... I think when you don't have the history... There's something missing for you in, you know, there's a, a, a lot of study happening right now about um, uh, how uh, epigenetics, how our wounding is passed down in our genes, uh, generation to generation, and that there is a decoupling from trauma and the experience we have in our bones. Uh, and we're, we're starting to see this with science now, right? So if you grow up, in a family that has multi-generations of history with a word, 
the nuance, the complexity, the pain of that is something you know, right? If you didn't, you don't have, it, this is a weird analogy, but it's almost like having a soup without a base. You know, like what makes a great soup? Really good broth, right? A really rich base. Uh, but if you don't have that base, it, there's nothing there. And, and I think that uh, people that don't have that history and then, you know, hearing it in pop culture going, well, you're using it. Why can't I? Right. Yeah. See, and, now, well, now you're getting down, Jeffrey, to the real problem that a lot of folks have. When I get this question, when, uh, when, when I used to do my uh, go around to campuses and talk about, you know, hip hop and the law, one of the first questions I'd always get from the audience, I knew this was going to come. It would be a white person, typically a white guy, raised his hand. He said, he'd say, Professor, why is it that black people, some, some variant of this, Professor, why is it that black people get to monopolize that word? Mm -hmm. why, why do only black people get to say that? Right? Why, why, why? Right? Uh, and part of it was, and I understood it, was that he and they recognized the N-word as a valuable cultural property, a very valuable cultural property, right? When Kanye West said in one of his songs, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no broke. When he added that N-word to the end of that couplet, he added a lot of spins to his bottom line, a lot of sales, mm -hmm. right? Bill Maher would love to sprinkle N-words and punchlines throughout his routine. It would, he, his pot, you know, he'd get even more exposure. He, the people say he's even more of a comic genius. I don't like him, but many people would say he's even more of a comic genius, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, like, like some, you know, of his um, uh, stands uh, uh, say, um, but he can't. He, he, when, when he tried, he got very quickly upbraided put his tail between his legs, went on an apology tour and said, I won't say it again. You know, you know, Mr. I'll say anything, anytime I want. No, I won't say it again because you, that, that is, a, you know, kind of a third rail, linguistic third rail, rail in, you know, in a, in a what do you mean a, by that? A third rail? It is, it, it is, uh, it has caused many people, their careers. It has caused yeah. many people, uh, 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 their well-being in public spaces. And they, people have said, use that N-word, had a step down from, um, you know, private companies that they've been running, right. public institutions and all the rest. So it's a, it's a word that is incandescent and radioactive. There's no other word like it, but that's what also gives its, it, its power. And that's what people want. They want to say, why can't I draw some of that power? Why do black people get to monopolize that cultural resource? Why can't I get a taste of that? Why can't I get in on that, right? And yeah. yes, you know, the fact of the matter is, um, non-blacks have been able to culturally appropriate a lot of black cultural fruits, right? Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes without attribution. This is one that you can't, and, okay? This is one that folks, non-blacks cannot. And uh, why, why, is it, why does it get stuck in your craw so to hear that? You know, I don't have to, you know, um, one of the things that I, inspired me to write, you know, what I call nigger theory is queer theory, yeah. right? Queer theory in the early 90s took a word queer that used to be vituperative and flipped it, right? And used it as Big part life. of a theoretical project. 
right? But I, they can use it that way. If, if, if they can use the F word. They can use whatever words they want as members of that group, you know. But why do I have to say, I, if I'm a cis straight male, why do I have to say I have to be able to use it too, you yeah. know? Right. Um, if, I'm, if, I'm not, if I'm not a woman, why do I have to, you know, a number of feminist magazine, one very good feminist magazine, for example, has B-I-T-C-H, is, that's its title. Right? It's a feminist magazine. They can do it. Why do I have to be able to, you know, say it uh, and be aggrieved if I can't say it like they say it? Here's, here's one of the things you mentioned somewhere in, in my preparation is finding the profound in the profane, Right. And so I'm imagining you as a, a college student at Berkeley, walking down Bancroft, all right, just strolling down the street, and then at, in the air, wafting, there is this sound you've never heard before, right? Uh, now, if, if you're not from the Bay Area, I used to live up in San Francisco, right? It almost reminds me in a different way, but like, you know, when you walk by like um, uh, uh, night jasmine on the street, right? Uh, and it just, it's so captivating. You're like, whoo, it just almost knocks you over. It, it, I'm imagining you walking down the street, having this sound waft and just going, what? And, you know, hip hop and law, uh, race theory and law. I, I'm curious about, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm queer. Uh, my, my partner doesn't even like that word. Uh, right. I'm happy with it. Uh, but I, I find for people who are called to be liberators in the world, right. Liberating voices that so often where we must go is into the profane for liberation. Cause that's where something's been demonized, shut down, robbed of people, something. And I'm curious, like what do you find draws you to the profane as a way into the profound? Yeah, great question, Jeffrey. I thought, you know, when I was walking down that street, Bancroft, I heard word work. Mm. That's what I heard coming out of that window. And I was a law student. And I tell my law students now that there are four occupations in America whose bread and butter is word work. That is writers, poets, lawyers, and rappers. Right. They, 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 they stand or fall on the word work they can do. Yeah. Right. And so as as somebody who had committed his, you know, now young, young professional life to the law, to to language in that way, I heard language that <laughs> was amazing. You know, as somebody who's in the language, you know, like right, they, right. They game recognized game, uh, you know, language. I heard some I heard a facility with the language, a fluency, a flow that was remarkable just from the standpoint of the art of language, the art of discourse, the, the, the music of language, right? Of, of language itself. And that's what arrested me initially. And I, I think that I was drawn to it in a way that a, a number of my peers were, weren't because they would hear the profanity and dismiss it. They would hear you know, some of the, you know, kind of street vernacular and dismiss it. They oh, this doesn't deserve, you know, careful attention, serious attention. This isn't Nikki Giovanni, you know, this is, you know, this is, or, 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 or you know, um, or, or any of the, 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 the pantheon, Toni Morrison or anybody. This is, 
th these are, you know, these are, you know, young black kids to, in the beginning, young black kids, 18, 19, 20, you yeah. know, um, out here spitting the king's queen's English uh, in ways that aren't always careful in which they're not always careful to conjugate their verbs or, or care about any of that stuff. Right. And they're bringing the profanity and, and, I'm, and they're not hearing the art in it. But when I heard like I, that, that piece I just gave uh, recited from Cube, when you hear that language, when you pause for a minute, you hear how good it is. When you when you hear somebody, something like um, one that came to me, I just heard the other day uh, that when I was thinking about the politics of respectability, it was done by Nas. I was saying this is just good word work. He has a in his hook. The last half of his hook goes something like this, Jeffrey, just as an example. Let's hear two for the spooks who do cartwheels because they said they played their parts well. Now they claim caviar, hate that oxtail. Lamb to signify badge on lapel. Why do you always tell him who he speaks so well? Are you the one we look to, the decent Negro, the respectable Negro? Hell no, nah. but they say these are our heroes. Now that's just a, a young cat putting some words together. But when you sit and think about it and study it, it has art. It has craft, it has precision, it has flow, and it has, you know, umph, you know, you know, that kind of vitality yeah. that people who are into word work love. So, yeah, that, that's what got me into it. Got it. Uh, I'm curious. So, you know, a lot of the folks that, that, that I work with are called to be messengers of some sort, uh, often disruptors of some sort. I'm curious what naming it n-word theory uh what it's cost you uh, what you've had to fight for uh how you've gotten through it especially in uh the esteemed halls of academia and law that might not want to hear it how, how have you navigated that well jeffrey one after that american association of law schools annual meeting speech that i gave in 1999 I didn't get invited back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. let's start with that. Yeah. Uh, 15 years later, they did actually invite me back. But, you know, there, there was a long hiatus uh, when I first started putting the book together after I did the play in 2007 called Race, Rap and Redemption, in which I incorporated all of these elements and then wrote the book to theorize that play. I finished the book in like 2012, 2013, Jeffrey. It was good to go. Um, and... I shopped it around to um, publishers, uh, some who liked some of my earlier work were very interested in working with me. They said though, they said though that the, it, the, the book cannot go out with the N word on the title, on the yeah. front cover rather as a title. Yeah. Right. And they said, you know, just for very pragmatic reasons, such as um, they brought out, would often bring out the trope of the little old lady in Pasadena going up to Barnes and Noble clerk and saying, I'd like a copy of uh, this, uh, 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 you know, N-word theory, whatever, right? Um, and that the clerk at the store is gonna have a hard time if copies run out up front, hollering back to the stock room, we're out of, you know, N-word theory up here. Can you bring more N-word theory to the front of the store? Yeah. You know, uh, so they, they had this real concern that, you know, it was too edgy um, and, you know, had crossed over from the cutting edge to the bleeding edge. <laughs> right. <laughs> cutting edge, one thing, armor. Bleeding edge is too much. But uh, I had, um, uh, Jeffrey, committed myself to this course 
yeah. you know, hella high water. Um, I remember Nas, who was one of my favorite rappers, gangster rappers, one of my favorite period. Um, when he was with a record company, he wanted to title one of his albums, um, N-I-G-G-A. And his record company said no. And he capitulated. And I, I, I was really kind of, I always kind of thought about that and said, not Nas, not you, Nas. You know, you're the one who doesn't capitulate. So yeah. this, this one time, I just wasn't going to capitulate. What that meant, Jeffrey, is it didn't get published. Yeah. So now I had to just sit back here, right? And, and as the Black Lives Matter movement is unfolding, so it was the perfect time to drop it, I had to sit there and just let it all happen around me and say, I'm not going to publish this without the title I want on the front cover because it's too apt, it's too felicitous, I'm not going to lose it, all right? Year two, three goes by, there's a film done on my work um, in which the, the director was hoping that the, 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 you know, the triumph at the end of the film would be me publishing the book. No triumph at the end. We had to publish the film without any triumph because the N-word stayed in the title, Jeffrey. Yeah. Um, and I finally started taking chapters of the book out and publishing them independently as law review articles while I waited. I started saying, well, let me publish this one. It went in the uh, American Journal of Criminal Law out of University of Texas. I published an, on the mens rea requirement. I published another one in the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law. I published another one in the Ohio State Journal of Criminal Law because I wanted to publish in, in a journal in the law school that my dad got law books from. He got them from the Ohio State you know, mm -hmm. Law School. So that was meaningful to me. And then finally, you know, um, LARB books came along and they had, you know, vision and backbone. It takes some backbone right now, right? We're talking about some backbone and some vision, some, you know, some, some, some risk taking that you consider, you know, a, a worthwhile risk taking. And they took it. And despite, and, I, and, I, and then I like to sum it up with all this, sum it all up with this, Jeffrey. Despite all that naysaying, and this is what I'm saying to other people who are writing and being told not to do it your way. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't all, that you don't sometimes have to compromise, but despite all that naysaying about how it wouldn't sell and couldn't sell and would be too much of a liability, uh, when it came out, it was a, the Amazon number one release in three different categories, courts and law, discrimination, um, uh, and, and um, rap music. Um, uh, Kirkus books said it was one of the, um, best books of 2020. Um, and then when the audio version came out, it went back up to a number one new, uh, release and sat there for a while. So all those experts were wrong six ways from Sunday. Yeah. In other words. Yeah. All right. So ultimately, and, 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 you know, I don't know, maybe it was, you know, maybe I don't, I, I hate to use the word serendipity in this context, but the fact is it came out two months after George Floyd um, was, uh, was murdered now, the jury said, murdered, and right as the marches were taking place, right after the marches ended. So the timing was really uh, fortuitous in that way. Yeah. I'm curious, is there some inner light that guides you, some faith, uh, spirituality, some... Something, I mean, you're obviously a, a deep thinker, right? Uh, you're incredibly well educated, you're a professor, all of that. But I'm curious if there's something 
either outside of you or deeper inside of you that keeps you going even when uh, you get the nose and the nose and the nose or even when X, Y, or Z happens? Yeah, uh, Jeffrey, uh, you know, I've thought about that some and, and, you know, quite a bit actually lately. And um, I think a lot of it, I, I can't take a lot of just credit. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is we can't, we shouldn't try to just take a, too much credit for our, you know, for our successes. You know, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm a little dubious about things, uh, you know, when it comes to credit and blame. Um, I, I, I was very fortunate, but for a better chance coming along, Jeffrey, you know, and taking me out and plunking me down in a boarding school situation, 600 miles away from, frankly, a lot of bad influences that I was surrounded by. But for that lucky intervention, we're not having this conversation. I'm not able to talk to you about any inner light or yeah. any burn, any inner burning fire, right? I have to start with my acknowledgement of just the sheer happenstance and the fortunate good luck I've run into. And then when, I, when the luck did present me with opportunities, the fire that kept burning was that one from that eight-year-old experience. And then, you know, um, seeing and, and, and growing close to a lot of guys, mostly because I was, you know, kind of hanging out with guys back in those days. We were young kids, 11, 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Uh, the guys I was hanging out with, uh, for, you know, loving them, bonding with them, you know, feeling real fraternal connections with them and then seeing them go to jail, yeah. you know, over and over. And, and then hear people talk about them as just so much toxic human waste because they went to jail. Hearing people like Chris Rock, you know, whose uh, routine I feature in the book. When he goes back and forth in front of an all, almost all black audience and says, I love black people, but I hate niggas. And one of his core definition of a so-called nigga is a black person who does a crime, a, 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 a black criminal. Right. Well, by that definition, you know, that up to 90 percent of young black males in some of these inner city neighborhoods are going to wind up in jail on probation, on parole at some point in their lives are niggas. You are morally condemnable others that we should demonize and, you know, kind of monsterize in that way. That's how we were talking about other black folk. That's how black folk were talking about black folk in the 90s. You know, yeah. it wasn't just um, Hillary Clinton talking about super predators, right? There was a whole moral framework. There, we, we, it's, some of us forget that the Overton window has shifted so much in the last 10 years that it's easy to forget how just 15 years ago, we were much more draconian in a lot of ways and much more morally dismissive. And much more, you know, in a way, um, scolding, you know, Bill Cosby would, would wag his finger and cluck his tongue at, you know, black kids who had names like uh, Kenesha, he would say. Why is somebody naming their kid Kenesha? You know, all this politics and respectability in the black community. He was getting an NAACP uh, uh, image award when he was saying all that. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. we've shifted a long way from that. And what I'm trying to and, and do is stay connected to those people we used to niggerize. Those kids that I grew up with are the ones Rock was talking about when he was saying, you know, let's put them on the other side of our care and contention and, and our care and compassion um, by niggerizing them. And, and, I, and, and so that's kind of the, um, the, the, the thing, the fire that's been keeping me going after all the good luck, but the first, good luck came first. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. Uh, 
Before we wrap up, there's just uh, one other place I want to go. I, there's a quote from you uh, related to what you were just saying. We must love and protect each other so radically that we don't allow our feelings for a few legitimize pain and suffering for the many. Uh, wow. And then in, in the book, you, you say it's the absence of doubt, the moral certainty that one is righteously doing the right thing that deliberately kills people by strapping a bomb and walking into crowded uh, crowd of tourists, for instance, or by strapping down a man in a chair and ejecting, gassing, shocking, shooting him to death. N-word theory argues for less certainty and for more epistemic humility in our moral discourse and criminal condemnations of black wrongdoers. Yeah, Jeffrey, what I'm trying to get at there, especially in the first part is, it's hard to remain principled sometimes mm -hmm. when you're looking at victims who come from socially marginalized groups, right? Like George Floyd, right? Um, like, um, for that matter, Botham John. You remember the 26-year-old black uh, youth who was sitting on his couch eating ice cream in Dallas when a Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger, kicked in his door and shot him dead, right? And um, she had mistaken his apartment for hers, of course. Right. It, was a, it was a negligent mistake, but it was a mistake. And many people at the time, uh, my timeline, were, were, were calling for urging that she get a murder conviction, that she be convicted of murder. Let's full stop, right? And anything less than murder will not be justice. And that's what I've heard a lot of people saying with, when it comes to um, 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 uh, Chauvin, you know, Derek Chauvin. Um, and what I, say, what I say all the time, and this is the upshot of the book, so I'm gonna bring it home right now, Jeffrey. This is gonna get me in trouble. This may get us all in, you know, uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, flack from folks who feel very strongly the, uh, another way, but I think the price principles or principle is consistency. You know, you have to be willing to pay that price of principle, be consistent when it hurts, when it's hard, mm -hmm. right? When it, when, when it doesn't come cheap. So when I argue that Amber Geiger should not be found guilty of anything more than manslaughter, not murder, because unless we think about violent offenders fundamentally differently, we're never going to make deep cuts in racialized mass incarceration. So if yeah. you start to wrap your arms around a moral framework that stresses retribution, retaliation and revenge when it comes to somebody like Amber Geiger, because the victim is from a socially marginalized group, i.e., you know, Botham John and the victimizers from a socially dominant group like police officers or, you know, white folks, you know, not women, but white folks that somehow that you should then, in that case, not talk about restoration, rehabilitation and redemption. You should talk about retribution, retaliation and revenge. Right. But if the person who's a perpetrator is coming from a socially marginalized group, then it's OK to talk about restoration redemption and rehabilitation and to turn away from retribution, retaliation, revenge. It doesn't work that way. If uh -huh. you reinforce retribution, retaliation, and revenge over here, you're making it easier for it to be applied over there, right? And so that means when it comes to, for example, Derek Chauvin, okay? I know 
People have been very satisfied that he got two murder convictions and a manslaughter conviction. Second degree murder, third degree murder, and manslaughter. First of all, that second degree murder conviction was for felony murder. A horrible rule that redounds to the detriment of many black people all the time. It imposes a kind of strict liability for murder, even though the only level of subjective culpability you had or mens rea for the crime was negligence. I won't go into a whole lot of details. It's a horrible rule. It's, it's been limited by lots of courts and legislatures. It's been criticized by everybody, but people are not are very happy that it was applied to Derek Chauvin. That's okay. Mm -hmm. We got felony murder, second degree on him before, on that. Then third degree murder, okay, means that it was recklessness plus a depraved heart, okay, that he was extremely indifferent to the value of human life. I know there's a temptation to go that route, I think that he, what he did was atrocious. I don't have any doubts, but if we aren't going to make allowances for people who commit violent crimes, whether they are black or white or Latino or Asian, whether they are from the dominant or subordinate group, whether they're a have or a have not, the moral framework has to remain constant because any, any distinction you try to come up with is gonna be a slippery slope and you're not gonna be able to sustain it. I promise you, I've been in classrooms for 20 years going through these paces, right? You're not gonna be able to keep us off that giant slalom, slippery slope as soon as you start making exceptions. Mm -hmm. You know, you gotta be willing to say, we don't monsterize anybody. We humanize everybody. We don't treat anybody as so much toxic human waste to be dismissed and, and, and discarded. So that is the kind of counterintuitive result I reach in a case like this. Not that Derek Chauvin shouldn't be held accountable. He should. But I don't think we need to try to maximize the amount of punitive pain and suffering we inflict on him in, in the name of justice. Mm -hmm. Your whole, uh, I, I got to tell you, not, I, 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 I've been listening to the audible version, right? Uh, so, and it's great. Highly recommend people to check it out and your narration. I, I almost never buy audible books unless the actual author narrates it. Uh, it's, it's uh, really, really rich. Um, it strikes me that at the heart of N-word theory is humanizing rather than otherizing. Right. Absolutely. And that if we don't get that, I don't care which laws we switch around and change and how we, you know, go, oh, well, now you're the bad people and we're the good people or, or, or vice versa, Th that nothing in the long stretch really changes. That's and, uh, you know, your, your, your upbringing where you said, I, I was hanging out with these guys and then they were in jail, right? It strikes me, uh, I, I have a former client who wrote a book about this uh, serial killer in, in Norway. And she was like, I was like, why did you write this book? Also an attorney. Um, and uh, she just said, he grew up 20, you know, 20, 30 minutes from me. And what made him different than me? Yeah. You know, and she just, she had to get inside of that conversation. Uh, and I hear in your conversation, you know, ha had it not been for this program that took me out of this circumstance, put me in this one and on a different path. I could have been one of those guys, right? I, I could have been there. Jeffrey, that's the part you said I thought was so good to kick us off with about uh, nigger theory being in part a prayer. Mm. 
right? It is my acute awareness that all we are, are these selves that we embrace and define ourselves in terms of this self is nothing but a tissue of contingencies, right? Once we accept that, and that's what I do in that moral luck chapter, once we really accept our own, you know, contingency in that way, hopefully humility comes with that. That's the big hope, right? Epistemic humility, our uh, humility about our capacity to morally judge others. And it connects us to one another at that most human level because we get out of the better than, worse than, you know, uh, wicked worthy, you know, it says uh, we, we, we are all humans and that doesn't mean we don't fight like hell against injustice. I may have to go to war and spill blood to stop Nazism. You know, I might, you mm -hmm. know, but and, I, and on the battlefield, it's, it's, it's about blood. But once we have once the, the battlefield has been left and now we have a court of law, we have a moment of reflective equilibrium in, we're, in which we can sit back as a society and make these kinds of criminal judgments. Then we should not we should be guided by these other principles. Right. Now, we're not try, just fighting for survival. We're trying. We should be able to look at things through this alternative moral lens of restoration, redemption, rehabilitation, and not retribution, retaliation and revenge, yeah. which is which is which is a way of distinguishing and distancing ourselves from others, which whereas restoration, redemption and rehabilitation is a way of connecting us to others, recognizing their humanity and trying to repair and heal any uh, any rifts between them and us. Yeah. So good. Uh, let's wrap it up there. This is, uh, this has been really rich. It's been uh, a real gift having you here. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the work you do in the world. Uh, thank you for challenging us and uh, may you keep, keep going uh, and uh, bring more, more and more humanity to us humans. Thank you for your very nuanced and thoughtful questions too. You really read the book. I appreciate that. Mm, absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, speaking of the book, uh, N asterisk GGA theory, race, language, unequal justice, and the law. You can get it at your favorite bookstores, at Audible, all that good stuff. Uh, Jody, you have a uh, uh, website as well. What's that? Yes, jodyarmor.com. Fantastic. So uh, we'll have this all in the show notes online as well. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeffrey. Take care now. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening in. If this conversation was powerful, if it stirred your soul or inspired your journey, then be sure to share it with a friend. Just copy and paste the link wherever you're listening to this podcast and text that link right now to a friend that you think would be inspired by this episode. And if this is your first time here, be sure to click that subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and review so I can get to know you and your thoughts better. To learn more about the work I do with emerging and established paradigm changers, go to thecourageousmessenger.com. That's all for today. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope to see you in the next episode.